Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, this morning, this morning uh, we will look at how we're moving beyond the war on drugs to understand the broader challenges of transnational organized crime and what strategies can be effective in combating this threat. While illegal drugs and crime associated with them are still are devastating communities on both sides of our southern border, it's not yet clear how successful the huge investments made over the decades have been in eradicating supply and production. The bottom line is this, where the rule of law is weak or non-existent, transnational criminal organizations will prosper and engage in corruption. In 2011, the Obama administration issued a strategy to combat transnational organized crime. This was an ambitious, aspirational strategy that sought to mark an evolution in thinking. Now, nearly five years later, we need to ask what is working and what is not so we can get this right moving forward. Our witness today is Ambassador Bill Brownfield, who is a strategic thinker with, a long, with long practical experience. We welcome him and look forward to his testimony in our discussion. With that, I'll turn to our ranking member, our distinguished ranking member, Senator Ben Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for convening uh, this hearing on transnational crime. Uh, the world has changed, and so has transnational organized crime. And I think it's important for us to have an update as to where we are. Uh, President Obama's 2011 transnational organized crime strategy, it's been there for a while, is it working? Uh, do we need to do more? We need an update, and I hope today that Secretary Brownfield, you will share with us uh, how we are doing in regards to that strategy. Organized transnational crime, uh, has, we've seen uh, many of the um, results of that. We've had hearings on trafficking, on human beings, on wildlife, on weapons, on drugs, uh, we've seen uh, the transnational organized crime in its financial crimes against us, particularly on uh, cyber. I'm particularly proud of the work being done in my own state of Maryland on cybersecurity, dealing with the effects of transnational crime. The work at Fort Meade, where we have our cybersecurity uh, uh, command, uh, and many uh, private companies working in my state in regards to these issues. There's a clear nexus between uh, government corruption and transnational crime. Uh, that is, uh, I think, pretty clear. When you take a look at how uh, uh, transnational crime uh, spreads, uh, you find areas in which there is uh, corruption and uh, where they can uh, uh, deal with their uh, expansion of their own activities. And then, Mr. Chairman, the human cost of this, you know, we talk about the, uh, the impacts of uh, dealing with transnational crime, but the impact of this, uh, the, tra the trafficking of drugs into America. And in my state and in every state of the nation, we see record numbers of addictions. So it's, it's affecting our communities uh, directly as well as the criminal elements uh, and what they do. Uh, and we certainly have seen that in the trafficking of migrants. Uh, in April, 500 people died alone in the Mediterranean on one capsized trafficked boat. So there's a human cost to this, and of course it's big business. The numbers are astronomical. Uh, just in the trafficking of refugees in 2015, 
it was a five to six billion dollar enterprise. So it's a huge amount of resources that are being taken out of our productive economy through organized transnational crime, and we need an equal response to it, and I look forward to hearing from our witness. Well, thank you for your comments. Today our witness is Ambassador William Brownfield, the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Uh, we had a long meeting last week uh, to go through many aspects of this, uh, this problem, and I thank him for being here today and sharing his knowledge, but also his thoughts about how better to attack this. Um, if you could, if you could keep your comments to about five minutes, that'd be great. Uh, we look forward to questions. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. With that, have at it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ranking Member Cardin. Thanks for the opportunity to appear today to discuss our evolving understanding and response to transnational criminal threats. Gentlemen, if I were asked to describe current strategic threats from transnational crime, I would mention two. First is our priority from the last century, drugs. We must today manage a strategic transition from cocaine to heroin. We've made great progress on cocaine. U.S. consumption is down more than 50%, but heroin abuse is exploding. Our international challenge is to work the solution with the government of Mexico, the source of most heroin in the United States. And I can report that we are working well together, meshing our domestic heroin abuse reduction plan with Mexico's new national heroin plan. But we must not ignore cocaine. In two years, cocaine production in Colombia has doubled, and the U.S. is the traditional market for Colombian cocaine. Colombia is understandably focused on its peace process to conclude a 50-year armed conflict. Our challenge is to support that process while at the same time pursue a serious drug strategy for Colombia and Central American transit nations. And we need to address challenges beyond our hemisphere. Afghanistan produces more than 80% of the world's heroin. Africa is a massive transit point for trafficking networks moving north-south and east-west. And the Chinese pharmaceutical industry produces much of the world's dangerous new psychoactive substances and some old ones like fentanyl. The second and the greater strategic challenge for the 21st century is that vast new field of organized criminal activity that is neither drugs nor terrorism. We call it transnational organized crime. It includes human smuggling and trafficking in persons and wildlife, arms trafficking, illegal mining and logging, cybercrime, intellectual property theft. While each crime is distinct, they all share certain enablers. They require corruption to run their trafficking networks and money laundering to convert illegal revenue into legitimized property. They all prey on weak governing institutions and benefit from poverty, poor education, and lack of jobs. In the increasingly globalized 21st century, transnational organized crime may be the greatest law enforcement threat to confront the United States. We have learned lessons since first attacking the drug crises of the 20th century, and we've changed our tactics accordingly. One lesson is that many of the techniques and, and technologies developed over 40 years to control illicit drugs 
can also be applied to talk. But police operations, interdiction, lab takedowns, arrests, while important, cannot alone solve transnational organized crime. Long-term progress means stronger law enforcement and rule of law institutions, whether through training, education, equipment, or technology. And our partner institutions are not just the police. They are also investigators, prosecutors, public defenders, judges, and corrections officials. And we must construct the global architecture, the treaties and conventions, the UN and other international organizations, the cooperation and coordination mechanisms that permit governments and law enforcement to work together to address transnational organized crime. Mr. Chairman, I've been in this business more than 37 years. I take the long view to solving our national security challenges. When I joined the Foreign Service in 1979, the most sophisticated tools available to law enforcement working an international case were the telephone and a Rolodex file. We have come a long way since then, but we have a long way to go still. Thank you, and I thank the members of the committee, and I look forward to your questions and your comments. Well, thank you very much for your testimony and for the time you've spent on this in 37 years and uh, for the meetings we've had in the office. Let me, I want to make sure people um, heard fully what you had to say. 90% of the heroin that comes into the United States is, is not just coming from Mexico, it is produced in Mexico. Is that correct? That is a good rough estimate, Mr. Chairman. So it's not a situation of having a southern border where things would naturally migrate through. It's actually being produced there. I think the other point you wanted to make sure that you got out is that you are working very closely with the Mexican government to try to deal with this issue and feel like you have a, a good partner in that regard. Is that correct? That's also correct, Mr. Chairman. I think very highly of the Attorney General of Mexico who has been placed in charge of the Mexican government's efforts. So, but what is it that is specifically causing 90% uh, of the heroin that Americans are consuming to be produced in Mexico? M Mr. Chairman, that's a very good question and I'm gonna offer you two, three, maybe even four elements of an answer. Uh, one part of the answer is that the same Mexican trafficking organizations or cartels that for the last 20 years or so had been moving the product from South America, mostly cocaine, uh, through Central America and into the United States, discovered as the cocaine demand reduced in the United States that they could, they could replace much of that uh, through heroin and made a systematic effort to build that market. So it was Mexican organizations building the market. Second, they discovered that having a vertically integrated system, which is to say controlling the entire process from cultivation through laboratories that converted opium poppy into heroin to the transport and logistics networks and eventually then the revenue, the, the, the money laundering networks worked to their advantage. Third, you have geography, which is to say Mexico is a lot closer to the United States than is Afghanistan. And fourth, in a sense, Mexico became the victim of Colombia's successes. Colombia used to produce about half of the heroin consumed in the United States, but thanks to some very serious and successful efforts by the Colombian government, 
Colombian heroin has dramatically reduced in the U.S. market. Mexican heroin has replaced it. So what's happened in Mexico is not unlike uh, any international business enterprise. Uh, vertical integration, proximity to customer uh, has caused the, the Mexican production to dramatically increase, uh, just like any other legitimate business might act. This is obviously illegitimate. Uh, they're, they're adopting the same principles. Is that correct? That's exactly right, Mr. Chairman. As I like to say often, uh, drug trafficking organizations are criminal and are vicious, but they are not stupid. They're yeah. very good Businessman. So my staff had some comments, my, my great staff had some comments about some of the positive things that were happening in Columbia. Uh, however, I declined not to say those in my opening comments because of what you just said, and that is that 50% uh, increase in cocaine production is occurring right now in Columbia. What is driving that? After all the years of effort, um, after, uh, you know, positive effort by many administrations, what is driving that 50% increase? Actually, and, and Mr. Chairman, I might even nudge your figure up from 50% to closer to 100% over the last two going on three years. I think it's driven by several factors. One, and to be, to be blunt and honest, is to focus and attention of the Colombian government on their peace process and to some extent a willingness uh, or a desire not to take steps that would complicate that peace process. And the FARC guerrilla movement is today, as it has been for more than 30 years, one of the world's leading drug trafficking organizations. Second, the government of Colombia no longer has the same eradication program that they had for the last 20 years or so. They have stopped all aerial eradication, and they have not replaced it with ground-based manual eradication. Now, this is partly a decision of them telling us uh, to stop aerial eradication, but it's also partly a function of the Colombian coca growers having realized and discovered that certain zones in Colombia would not be sprayed zones right. right near national frontiers and borders, or zones in national parks, or zones in indigenous reserves or in FARC-controlled areas, the net effect of that is this explosion of coca cultivation. Now, let me just ask you, is this somewhat, uh, it's not what we want to hear. I know we had the president up here recently, and uh, all of us were glad to see him and certainly want to continue the partnership we've had, but is this in some ways an accommodation to the FARC in order to, uh, to end up in a, in a more peaceful situation that you see occurring? Mr. Chairman, I, I, I think, I think there is, it is part of that, but I, that's, that's too simple an answer, and I, I want to give complete credit to the government of Colombia, who I ad, ad, admire enormously, who I think have made extraordinary effort at great cost and with great courage in terms of what they are doing. But I do think we have to acknowledge that as this the, the peace process and its negotiations have developed over the last four years. One of the elements of Colombian government policy that has not been maintained at its previous level is counter-narcotics and eradication. So I want to move on to the next person out of respect for everybody here on the committee. I, I do, at, in my next round, want to focus on the tremendous increase uh, in production that's occurring right now in Afghanistan and the highly 
lucrative production of fentanyl uh, that is occurring in China, which is actually so much easier to do, so much cheaper to make, and yet so much more lucrative. And that's probably our next challenge uh, as a nation with that, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, I want to follow up on your, on your, your point. And, and Ambassador Brownfield, we very much appreciate your service. Um, we know um, the work that you did in Colombia, and we appreciate that very much. And we now need to see how we can deal with a more holistic approach on drugs coming into America. Uh, I just want to concentrate one minute on heroin, because I've been throughout my state and I have seen the impact of heroin addictions uh, in Maryland, and I, it's every part of my state. There is no part of Maryland that's been immune. No community has been spared. And my understanding that this is true throughout America, the, the heroin addiction issues are incredibly impacting uh, all of our communities. So I am pleased to hear your report that from the governmental sector, you're confident that our relationship with Mexico uh, is productive and that we are working on that issue, but you've also acknowledged a 100% increase in, in the heroin production in Mexico. So uh, clearly, we have to be more effective in our policies in Mexico to stop the production. Now, there's a lot of other issues involved in the heroin use here in the United States. We have the opioid uh, uh, abuses, et cetera. So we, have, we need a multiple approach, but from your experiences in Colombia, I would hope that we would have a more uh, aggressive um, expectations on cutting off source productions in Mexico. A, 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 that's a very fair hope on, on your part, Senator, and, and I, uh, I want to feed into that hope. I am, uh, I am optimistic, but by the same token, I've been in this business long enough to know that to have an impact, you have to think in terms of years, not in terms of months. And I would use Columbia as an example. Plan Columbia launched in 2000. Until the year 2007, no one, no one in, in, in this institution of the United States Congress or the executive branch would have been prepared to say, we have made serious inroads and impact on cocaine production in Colombia. By 2007, 2008, seven to eight years after the start of the most aggressive uh, program we have ever pursued in the Western Hemisphere, we began to see uh, that impact. And I, I, I lay that out as a concern as we deal with Mexico. As we are working with Mexico, we have to remember that we have our own part to play in this, and, and it's a serious part. Uh, the, the, the Office of the National Drug Control Policy Director uh, has developed uh, the Heroin Abuse Reduction Plan, and, and the objective of that plan is to reduce the demand for the product in the United States. The Mexican government, in my judgment, has been very good about law enforcement efforts focused on interdiction, and attacking and taking down laboratories. The challenge that we have right now, Senator, is going after the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of acres in Mexico that are currently under cultivation for opium poppy. That's the challenge. That's what I'm trying to work right now with the government. But, and, uh, and obviously, that's extremely important, and we want to help any way we can. Could you just share with us 
a better understanding of the criminal elements that are bringing the uh, heroin into the United States, its relationship to traffickers uh, in regards to humans. Uh, give us an understanding, are we talking about Mexican uh, cartel type uh, operations? Or are we talking about uh, American connections? Are we talking about uh, other parts of, of our hemisphere or outside of our hemisphere that are involved in these transnational criminal uh, syndicates that are effectively uh, bringing the drugs and perhaps people into the United States? Senator Cardin, I'll, I'll offer you my views, uh, and obviously uh, U.S. law enforcement has a right to correct, adjust, fine-tune, or modify anything you are about to hear from me. First, it is my opinion that, that the Mexican drug trafficking organizations have developed in the last 10 to 15 years in a way uh, that basically supplanted previously the Colombian drug trafficking organizations, which dominated the movement of product, particularly cocaine, uh, from South America to the United States. They are overwhelmingly within Mexico uh, Mexican organizations that are comprised of Mexican citizens. Do they also take advantage of other, other forms of trafficking uh, in order to make money? Yes, they most assuredly do. Uh, and whether that's, that's trafficking in persons or firearms, whether it's trafficking in, 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 in contraband uh, or other forms of criminal activity, they engage in it. Their usual approach is to manage the process themselves from within Mexico and get the product across the United States border. That is done by the organizations themselves and their personnel. Once they have delivered to the ultimate destination in the United States, by which I mean the city, at that point they have a local partner. And that partner may or may not be Mexican. It may be an all-American gang. It, it, it may be a mix. But that is the point as they shift from transportation and wholesale into retail, where the product then moves from the criminal organization, the Mexican cartel, to some other Americanized version. And just so I understand, you're, you're confident that the leadership in Mexico fully understands this and is working with us in order to root out these criminal elements within Mexico? I, I, I am, Senator, uh, although I do say that this has taken a number of years. And the reason is that it is a change from the perspective of Mexico to how they addressed drug-related issues. Until the heroin crisis, and you use that word correctly, we have a heroin crisis in the United States. Until that crisis, the Mexican position was roughly that by the accident of geography, they were located in between the producer states further down to the south in South America, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, and the consumer states located to their north in the United States or in Canada or in Western Europe. As we have shifted from cocaine to heroin, they have had to, to, to confront the reality that the entire problem is centered there. It's taken time. I believe we're moving in the right direction. I continue to offer you optimism, but with a careful dose of please don't hold me to a solve this problem by Friday standard. I will uh, follow up on the second round. Thanks. Senator Isaacson. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
I represent the state of Georgia, the capital of which is Atlanta, which is ground zero for Mexican drugs coming in the United States. I mean, that is where it comes to get distributed, either through Hartsfield International Airport, the interstate highway system, the Port of Savannah, whatever. My impression is that the operational control of the border between the United States and Mexico and the land therein is pretty much controlled by the Mexican drug cartels. Am I right? Uh, you're talking to a native Texan, uh, George. Uh, uh, Senator, I, I wouldn't go that far. I would say, however, on the south side of the border, there is a tremendous amount of penetration and influence, including several of the major Mexican border cities. And the increase in the heroin trafficking is because of the increased demand for heroin in the United States of America. Is that not right? It, it certainly is, is right that you would not have nearly the amount of heroin crossing the border if there were not demand, although I would suggest to you much of this demand was manufactured and artificial, which is to say the original demand was caused by perhaps over-prescribing pain uh, opioids for, for, as pain medication, which, de which developed some demand, and then the cartels substituted, say, $40 a hit, which you had to do by, by using uh, a prescription drug to give the same buzz for 10 bucks with straight heroin, right. and they then created, if you will, a market for heroin. Do you think the human trafficking and the drug trafficking coming in the United States out of Mexico are tied to each other? I do, in very many instances, yes. In fact, the human traffickers are used to get the drugs into the United States over, over the border, are they not? I do believe that as well. How much cooperation are we getting from the Mexican government to try and stop that? I believe we get good cooperation on a case-by-case -case basis and in specific locations. I believe across the board, the cooperation is good with Mexican federal authorities along the border. I think the cartels are so skilled and so well informed that they can identify and spot the weak points so that in a sense, even if we had 99.9% of a tightly controlled border, they would find that one-tenth of 1%. That's the problem. That's the challenge that we're dealing with. I'm, my, I get the impression that the enforcement, the cooperation of foreign, I'm not just talking about Mexico here, I'm talking about in the macro sense. The cooperation that foreign governments give us on the human trafficking issue is less than helpful. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it depends upon the country, but I, I, would not, I would not disagree that in a lot of cases there is a reluctance to acknowledge that they have a trafficking in persons problem. Our chairman and ranking member have done a great job really focusing on the human trafficking issue, which is a, a real tragedy. And I go back to my state of Georgia and Atlanta being in particular. We're ground zero for where a lot of those people are brought to come thinking they're getting into America, but they end up becoming sex slaves, drug traffickers, or worse, or domestic servants, or whatever they might be. But it, I, I just don't get the impression that internationally or within this hemisphere that we get the cooperation we should from other governments to really stop the human trafficking. It seems to be growing rather than diminishing. Yep, I, I, I don't disagree with that, Senator. And I'm gonna even, you're gonna accuse me of pandering, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make one additional statement. Uh, I, I have signed a, a memorandum of understanding, and I signed it the first time about two years ago, uh, with a large city police department. It's called the Atlanta Police Department, and they have a division that does 
uh, hate crimes as well as, uh, as, as crimes involving trafficking in persons, which are usually uh, sexual or gender-based right. uh, crimes, and they are the best trainers that we have anywhere in the world for many of the reasons that you yourself have just laid out. And part of the challenge, and therefore part of the solution, is how we can project the way we deal with these problems here in the United States in a real-world way uh, with, with, with police uh, that are overseas in countries that have the same problem. That's, that's part of our challenge. Don't ever apologize to the Senate for pandering. We do it all the yeah. time. <coughs> but on the, uh, on, the, on the subject, of, and, we, and you and I have, I don't think, ever met, so I'm, I want to thank you for teeing up what I was going to be my last comment about the Atlanta APD and what they are doing in terms of the gang issue, which in terms of human trafficking and drugs are the, are the enablers in the United States for a lot of the cartels in Latin America and, and in Mexico. And it's the flow of information of these gangs that can be the best mechanism we can use to stop a lot of trafficking and drug, di drug distri distribution. That's my impression. Do you agree with that? I do agree with it. In fact, I've tried to say it as often as I can. We have signed 110 memorandum of understanding with state and local law enforcement institutions throughout the country. And my message is, this is not just in our interest, we get excellent trainers to do programs overseas, it is in their interest because as they engage overseas in training missions, they are developing the contacts with, their, with foreign police, they are developing the intelligence sources that can in turn be played back to help them do their jobs on the streets of America's cities and communities, whether it's gangs or trafficking organizations uh, or other, uh, others that are involved in international, transnational, organized crime. And on that point, Mr. Chairman, law enforcement, particularly in the southeastern United States, has developed such a database that the tracking of these, uh, of these gang members and the flow of these gang members is becoming very traceable. In a, at a very instantaneous type of approach through a, through a database that's been assembled, and it's really helping us to begin to get our arms around it. So I appreciate you bringing APD up. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for your service. Uh, in 2011, the administration released a strategy on combating that transnational organized crime with a stated end goal of reducing from a national security threat to a manageable public safety problem, the effects of trans organized transnational crime. The strategy outlines five key objectives, identifies dozens of priority actions for implementation. The five objectives of the strategy are protecting U.S. citizens and interests, supporting partner nations to address corruption related to transnational crime, protecting the U.S. financial system from exploitation by organized crime, targeting transnational criminal networks that pose a threat to U.S. national security, and building international cooperation through multilateral fora and public-private partnerships. In your testimony, however, you noted that INL, and I'm quoting, has recalibrated its work uh, and focus on two mutually supportive strategic objectives, helping partner governments build, reform, and sustain judicial institutions that enhance the capacity of their criminal justice systems, and developing the global architecture necessary for cross-border law enforcement cooperation and preventing corruption. So does that represent a strategic shift uh, by the administration? 
I know you noted that you're not ready to declare victory, but did circumstances portend defeat? Uh, I'd like to understand what the recalibration means for U.S. policy. Has our end goal changed? Have the ways to achieve it changed? Now, Senator, here, here's the way I would, uh, I would answer uh, that, that perfectly legitimate question. I would say that, that I only asked perfectly legitimate. That was that was. <laughs> At least I think so. I, I would say that that INL is part of a larger group of institutions. Uh, we obviously have the federal law enforcement organizations. We have the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I, 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 we, we have those that are that, that are involved in the counterterrorism efforts as well. We therefore have a piece of the uh, of the national. Uh, strategy on transnational organized crime. This was about the time, you may vaguely recall, since you chaired the hearing that foolishly uh, recommended eventually my, uh, my confirmation in this position, uh, that this was about the time I came into this position. And my decision at that time was, let's, as INL, let us not try to do all of this strategy. Let us pick those elements where we have the greatest ability to influence in a positive way. And we picked institution building because, in a sense, it's what we do across the board around the world and developing the global architecture, which is, which is a code for the conventions, the international agreements, the international organizations and mechanisms that allow governments to coordinate and cooperate around the world. We're actually working the other issues as well, but my guidance to my people five years ago was, let's pick those areas where we can have the most impact and where other parts of the United States government would not naturally be doing as much. Well, I, I asked the question, and I want to follow up uh, with a different part of your testimony, because certainly protecting the U.S. financial system from exploitation, and certainly uh, uh, targeting transnational criminal networks that pose a threat to U.S. national security, I would think would be essential elements of any such plan that we would want to pursue. So. You know, the, the two stated goals that you've described, that you've narrowed it down to, may tangentially help that, but I'm not sure it directly does. So uh, let me ask you this. You say that INL's support for capacity building is now, my emphasis, directed by the requests of our international partners. Host governments and their citizens must own the process of reforming their institutions. It can't be driven by the desire of the United States or other donors. Uh, again, it may be more than uh, semantics, but where you say this can't be driven by the desire of the United States, I, I absolutely think it should be driven uh, by pursuing our own national security interests and projecting our own values. No one else is going to do that for us. Uh, so I ask these questions uh, because many of us here are trying to give this and whatever future administration the tools it needs to accomplish the goals the administration says it has set. And I hope the administration does not reset INL's goals to only work within the confines of relationships that aren't adversarial. So what happens in many countries, uh, certainly there are several in the 90 or so that fall within INL's orbit, where the government or others in control don't want to help, 
because that would interfere with our profiting, uh, their profit-taking profit or other personal interests. Are we seeing ourselves then as barred from working with other institutions and NGOs and others in those countries that could move towards creating the type of systems that we would want to see? No, Senator, I, I think in a sense you and I are, are, are reaching the same conclusion, but we're saying it in different ways. Of course, uh, we, we want to cooperate with those governments and in those countries that represent, if you will, the greatest transnational organized crime threat to the United States of America. My point in my statement was, if we do not have buy-in or genuine commitment by the host government, we probably are not going to succeed. That's one of those lessons I've learned over the last 37 years. Now, we certainly can encourage the buy-in, we can nudge the buy-in, or we can, we can try to direct and guide the buy-in, but I have, you will recall, I had the somewhat dubious pleasure of being the United States ambassador for three years uh, to a country whose government was determined to have an adversarial relationship with us. I will not identify it other than to say its capital is located in Caracas. I could not have delivered one single successful program in terms of institutional institution building uh, in those three years in that country because the government would not cooperate. That's the point I'm trying to make. With some countries, our strategy has to be a periphery strategy. What can we do around the edges to address those issues that represent a threat to the United States? What we want to do is work with the government, with its commitment and its buy-in for these programs so that they themselves are supporting what we are trying to accomplish, what we're putting resources into, and what we are doing the training or capacity building. Mr. Chairman, I would just note, and I appreciate your courtesy, that then in countries uh, like a Venezuela and others, they're not unique to them, where they are operating in a way for which there is significant operations of transnational crime, then we must find other ways if we cannot induce them to participate uh, and have them institutionally decide to move in a direction that is both good for their people and in our national security, then you have to find other ways, it seems to me, uh, to pursue actions that will get them in that. And, and I look forward to working with the chair and the ranking member to think about those ways, because uh, otherwise we abdicate large swaths of uh, countries in which we are uh, undermined in our overall goal. I appreciate that. As a matter of fact, I would say based on my last my trip to <coughs> Venezuela that took place not long ago, uh, I can't imagine anything constructive that they would be willing to work with us on under the existing government. So I agree with you. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Secretary Brownfield. I wanted to ask you some questions about cyber, and I may get to one about fentanyl. Um, when we talk about cyber so often in this body, uh, in this committee, but I'm on the Armed Services Committee as well, we, we so often talk about it as a state v. state. Our cyber threats tend to come from state actors. And I'm just intrigued by your position at state. Talk to us a little bit about the cyber activities you see from transnational criminal organizations rather than direct state. Uh, what's the magnitude of this threat? What are trends in terms of cyber activity by criminal organizations that we need to be aware of? Yep. Senator, I, uh, I think you've already put your finger on the three areas where cyber and call it misuse or, or, or unlawful use of, of, of cyber constitutes a threat to the United States. 
One is state to state, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a matter of intelligence to all intents and purposes, either intelligence collection or intelligence manipulation. The second is terrorism, which, which is, is connected to, but, but we have treated it as a different issue from the rest of transnational organized crime. And that is the use of cyber uh, for the purpose of supporting, in some way, shape, or form, uh, terrorist activities and terrorist operations. The third is pure criminal activity which is to say the use of cyber for the purpose of stealing uh, or in some way illegally enriching oneself or one's organization. Uh, and my suggestion at the end of my, my oral statement was, as, as we look at transnational organized crime into the 21st century, we had better be careful because as, as we make progress on other elements, we may discover that it winds up being the greatest, not just law enforcement, but even security challenge to the United States of America. That's the challenge that we have before us. The challenge that I have is dealing with two different communities as well as my own kind of law enforcement and criminal justice community and figure how we can mutually support or borrow from one another in terms of technologies, techniques, and, 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 and systems that we have developed uh, for dealing with these issues. Uh, they are, they are, they're similar, but they are different. As you well know, based upon other committees that you sit on, uh, if, you're in, if you're working an intelligence issue or a terrorism issue, you're not necessarily thinking about developing a case for prosecution in a court of law. If you're dealing in my area of criminal justice, that's exactly what you're dealing with. And then the question is, how much can we borrow from one another before we have contaminated the product? Either we have contaminated their intelligence or counterterrorism product, or they have contaminated ours. Those are the sorts of challenges that I'm dealing with every day on the matter of cyber. You mentioned in your written testimony, just one quick sentence, the Council of Europe's Convention on Cybercrime, for example, provides a model for countries to develop domestic legislation and provides a platform for increased cooperation in cybercrime investigations. Uh, is the United States actively engaged with that council or similar uh, multinational uh, efforts to specifically focus on cooperation vis-a-vis -vis cybercrime? Senator, we, 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 have, uh, we have adopted uh, the, the Convention of the Council of Europe. We did it not because we are members necessarily of the Council of Europe or that we were a European nation. We did it because as, as we looked at the, entire, the entirety, if you will, of, of international conventions on the matter of, of cybercrime uh, about five or, 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 or 10 years ago, we thought this was the best product out there. And our view was, rather than reinvent the wheel, rather than creating something else from scratch, bringing in 196 different governments, all of whom will have their own particular point of focus or interest or concern, let's use the existing document. There are some that disagree. The government of China tells me on a fairly regular basis, which is to say every time I talk to them, that they would like there to be a new international convention on cybercrime. I can understand their position, but my own view is uh, let, let's not uh, let's not throw away a working vehicle uh, if, in fact, with minor modification, it can be made to run well for the next 50 or 60 years. And one last question, if I could. Um, if you were to give 
that was international cooperation. Inside the U.S. family, if you were to grade the level of cooperation between the different agencies that touch this, the three kinds of cyber areas you mentioned, whether it's state to state or terrorism or pure criminal activity, so you're talking DHS, you're talking state, you're talking DOD, you're talking intel agencies, what, what grade would you give currently to the level of coordination among, um, among the parts of the federal family that touch upon this important issue? Yeah, that's an unfair question, but I'll, uh, I, I, I've been in this business long enough that I'm willing to be, uh, to, to take risk and say things that I shouldn't say probably. I, I, I'd put it this way, Senator, we've, we've, we have probably moved uh, from a C minus uh, up to a B minus in the last five years. That is to say we're moving in the right direction. What we're pushing against are institutional, uh, you know, decades-long institutional biases and, and approaches from specific communities. We're pushing against some degree of stovepiping, which is to say each organization has its own capability and are not particularly anxious uh, to, to relinquish control over that and, and add it and mix it in with somebody else. And we're, we're dealing with, with different desired outcomes or objectives. And it's, it's, it's a tough challenge. It's, this is not just, uh, I know the easy answer would be uh, to tell you or allow you to say to, to, to me, you guys are just stupid, you can't figure it out and do it on your own. It's a, it's a bit more than that. This, this is complicated. This, this is an issue where we're, we're bringing together different communities that have traditionally over the last, oh, three or 400 years, not worked very closely together. And in some ways, may I offer one, one, one grounds for hope from the State Department side, part of the solution is the embassies, at least those embassies that are in the middle of the particularly dangerous zones, there you've got, a, it, it's the United States government in microcosm, where you have a little, a mini president with presidential authorities. We call him or her the ambassador. And when you boil it down to a smaller group of people, there they actually are able to do, uh, to, to work through some solutions, which we then find, you flip them back to, to headquarters, and we try to, to use the same solution here. It's actually one of the reasons why I have some, some optimism in this field. Great, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. <coughs> if you would, uh, Mr. Brownfield, would you expand a little bit on what's occurring uh, in China as you did in our office? China today, Mr. Chairman, and this is, uh, this is not evil, this is not bad. China is today uh, perhaps the, the world's largest pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I read a figure recently that there are 160,000 uh, pharmaceutical companies in China. That strikes me as high, but I read the figure. Don't ask me where I read it, uh, but I can find it at some point if I have to. China then is con it confronts a situation where they have a, a, an incredibly diverse, uh, extremely uh, uh, energetic pharmaceutical industry that is not anxious to be regulated. The Chinese government has moved in the right direction in a number of areas. Within the last six months, they have moved to register uh, 116 new psychoactive substances. This is the stuff uh, that the pharmaceutical industries of the world can cough out at a rate of several hundred per year with a registration rate in the United Nations system of somewhere between 20 and 30 per year. You can do the math in terms of what the impact in that regard is. 
one of the areas which we have consistently discussed with the Chinese government, Senator Cardin, is fentanyl, where we have noted uh, that, 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 that fentanyl is produced in many different forms or analogs in China. They have moved to, to register, which is to say to control, to require a license uh, for the production of many forms of fentanyl, but not all. And your, your question, Mr. Chairman, uh, suggests this answer, which is an accurate one. The overwhelming majority of fentanyl uh, that is consumed in the United States of America, which also produces fentanyl, by the way, for legitimate medical purposes, but very little of that slides out into the, in, in, into the black market. The overwhelming majority of fentanyl that is consumed in the United States of America as part of the heroin crisis is produced in China. And uh, explain to those that are watching the, the difference in profitability. It is phenomenal. If you assume that the cost of producing fentanyl is not significantly different from the cost of producing heroin. And that's, from a rough estimate perspective, that's, that's not a bad assumption, uh, Mr. Chairman. You know, a gram of heroin, a gram of fentanyl would probably end up being about the same. The gram of fentanyl will produce a buzz, a high, uh, whatever, whatever the, the noun is you wish to use for it, about 100 times, 80 to 100 times as powerful as morphine, and 40 to 50 times as powerful as heroin. So you just do the simple math there. Add to that the fact that, that, that the transport of fentanyl can be as simple as, as taking an envelope and putting several thousand doses of fentanyl in the envelope, sealing it, putting stamps on it, and putting it in the mail. The delivery is much, much simpler than the delivery for heroin. And that is why. And if you will, to to explain to to those that are that are listening to this, the size of an equivalent uh, cocaine delivery, if you will, that has the same potency that you just described. That you're talking about half a shoebox in what you just described. Yep. Is that correct? Yep, that is that, that is basically right. Uh, and I would say that that a a half a shoebox of fentanyl would provide you the, the same amount of buzz in, in purely psychic and, and drug-related terms as 25 full shoe boxes of heroin. That's the difference that we're looking at. That's why an envelope produces as much as a substantial, like multi-kilo shipment of heroin. And fentanyl in and of itself, properly used, Mr. Chairman, doesn't kill you. It is still used in the American medical community uh, under obviously tight control by an anesthesiologist. The problem that we have is when the fentanyl is mixed with heroin uh, and the user either does not know he has fentanyl at all or has bad fentanyl or has miscalculated, uh, given the potency of the fentanyl, how much he can absorb, that's what's killing Americans at the rate they're dying these days in the heroin crisis. Well, I look forward to another round of questions where we can talk a little bit about authorities that you might like to have to do your job better, but with that, Senator Cardin. Uh, just to underscore that point, um, in my t meetings that I've had in Maryland, the fentanyl issue has been 
uh, highlighted as uh, the growing problem and where we get most of our overdose um, fatalities. So it is a very, very serious problem today in Maryland and around the nation. And I don't think we're gonna have time today to understand this, but I think you're suggesting that the source China is one of the largest sources that's coming into the United States, is that? Yes, the overwhelming majority, although much of it comes in via Mexico, but the that's fentanyl itself is The produced. criminal elements that are bringing it into the United States are similar to the heroin trafficking? They are, and in fact, more often than not, Senator, it, it, they are exactly the same criminal organizations. But they're using as their source rather than homegrown poppy in Mexico, they're doing the, the synthetic drug in China. So yep. my, my, my view as of right now as to how this is happening is that the heroin itself is grown and produced in Mexico, that which is consumed in the United States. The fentanyl is produced in China, much of it, probably most of it, is then processed, shipped through Mexico, where it is then put into the pipeline, the same pipeline that moves heroin into the United States. And here I hope that your relationship with the Mexican authorities are helping us with our capacities to try to stop that flow from China to Mexico to the United States. Yep, and in fact, again, Senator, the government of Mexico has done a, has, has been, has worked with us Fentanyl is a controlled substance in Mexico. It is not openly available so that it can only move through Mexico through criminal means. So we, we are starting from a positive starting point. We still obviously have a lot of work to do. Uh, so I, you said in your oral presentation, you have it in your written presentation, the direct relationship between corruption and uh, transnational organized crime. You, you talk about governments that are corrupt at the senior level are ripe for this type of activity. And you talked about the impact <coughs> it has on uh, within the country itself. So I, I want to hone down just for a moment on uh, the corruption issues we have in regards to the heroin uh, or the synthetic drugs coming into the United States. There are problems in Mexico and the United States. Can you just tell us the degree uh, which corruption is entering into this and what we should be aware of? Sure. Senator, corruption is the great enabler uh, for drug trafficking, quite frankly, for any kind of trafficking, criminal trafficking in the world, to such an extent that I would say, if you did not have corruption, the trafficking networks would not work. They could not operate. And the corruption literally is corruption of individuals. They might be customs officials, they might be border officials, uh, they, they, they might be police or airport or seaport officials. In other words, the corruption that allows them to move their physical product through the choke points, because any trafficking network will have choke points. They usually are at borders, uh, they, they might be at airport borders or at seaport borders, but they've got to move their product through there. As they move into money laundering, they have to deal uh, with bankers and others in the financial institutions who will be aware of what is moving through, but willing either to participate or look the other way. Those are corrupted officials. At the end of the day, if a trafficking organization does not have a network of corrupted officials, it will not succeed. Do we see them in Mexico? Yes, of course we do. As you well know, uh, you'll find them perhaps in different numbers, but you'll find them in the United States of America as well. We are not immune to corruption. And in 
countries with a lower income level than in the United States, the possibility of a multi-billion dollar company or cartel offering a sum of money that might equal a hundred years salary to a police officer or a customs official solely to look the other way is a tremendous inducement and it is why corruption, in my opinion, has to be one of our highest priorities as we address transnational organized crime perhaps for the rest of this century. And, and let me just point out that Secretary Kerry recently announced a $70 million program in regards to fighting corruption. I would just urge that may, we may need to look at additional resources here, and I thank you very much for highlighting that point. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for being here today and your, your testimony. I uh, wanted to follow up, perhaps, uh, talking a little bit further about Mexico as well. I had the opportunity to visit with uh, many, many in their government this past uh, November. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Merida Initiative uh, and some of the efforts taking place there. Uh, how effective do you think the Merida Initiative has been uh, since 2008? We've spent about $1.5 billion in taxpayer money. How has that been? I know they're making some uh, changes as well in, in Mexico on their judicial and judicial reform. Could you maybe talk about both the effectiveness of the initiative and perhaps how their changes in judicial uh, prosecutions will, will affect transnational crime, drug trafficking issues, et cetera? Senator, uh, uh, I'm going to answer your question in two parts. First, I'm going to work through the, the, the four so-called pillars of the Merida Initiative and offer my views on how successful we've been on each one. Uh, one pillar was a, a modern 21st century uh, border between the U.S. and Mexico. I think we've made tremendous progress there. I think they have equipment, they have capabilities, they have people that they did not have before. We've reached a point now where we're focusing much more effort on Mexico's southern border, that with Guatemala and Belize, because much of what we're trying to control and manage is the flow of migrants and people, as well as drugs through Mexico. Uh, second is, is taking down criminal organizations. They've, they've, they've done a very good job uh, of taking down the leadership of a number of cartels. A, a critic or skeptic would push back and say, yep, but they seem to be replaced. The cartels have not disappeared. Some have, some have not. I'd give them at least a passing grade in that regard. Third is building stronger institutions. I do believe that, they, that, that, that the federal government of Mexico today has far better more professional, better trained and equipped institutions than they did at the start of the Merida Initiative seven or eight years ago. The challenge now, in my opinion, is trying to take that capacity and expand it into the 32 states, as well as the Federal District of Mexico City, since Mexico, like the United States, is a federal state. And finally, building stronger communities, particularly up along near the, the, the northern front, their northern frontier with the United States. There, uh, I mean, the truth is the Mexican economy is what drives that. When the economy is going well, the communities are, are, are better. When the economy uh, is, is down, the communities are less strong. That's taking the four things that we described as our Merida initiatives and giving them a report card. Where are we across the board? First, that the, the, the realities are changing. Uh, we're dealing today more with transnational organized crime. When we started Merida, we were focused on largely cocaine and to a lesser extent heroin. 
We've got to adjust Merida to, to reflect that reality. Second, we were dealing with a different Mexican government. That government uh, left office at the end of 2012. The, the now not so new government has a right uh, to, to determine its own priorities. I think we are making progress there, but we have to continue to work that. At the end of the day, my assessment is we are substantially better in our bilateral relationship with Mexico today than we were at the start of the Merida Initiative. And that in and of itself gives good value to the United States of America. One of the concerns I picked up on, when, particularly when it comes to drug trafficking issues, was concern from some that decriminalization efforts of marijuana in the United States uh, was hurting our efforts to stop drug trafficking out of Mexico. Can you talk about that perhaps? Yeah, I'll do it carefully, Senator. I am aware of who I am speaking to <laughs> right now. I will say, that it is impossible for me to go to Mexico and talk to the Mexican government without hearing from virtually everyone I talk to the, the, the seeming uh, contradiction between us seeking to cooperate with them in terms of controlling dangerous drugs, while in our own nation, four states of the union have now proceeded to legalize, by which I mean the state government has a direct financial interest in the cultivation, production, sale, purchase uh, of, of cannabis. I understand their message. Uh, I, I do not seek to dictate to the people of Colorado or Oregon or Washington State or Alaska uh, what they will decide to do. I do think I understand uh, the United States Constitution and the federal system of government. I say that it complicates my life internationally, uh, and I, I'm going to leave it at that because I, I I do acknowledge the people of Colorado have every right in the world to determine the laws that they wish to be governed. Uh, and uh, I've run out of time here, but perhaps we could have another conversation about Burma. I, I recently visited there, uh, and we spent a tremendous amount of time talking about uh, the drug situation there. Uh, the 2016 report, International Narcotics Control Strategy, talked about Burma continuing to be a major source of opium and exporter of heroin, second only to Afghanistan. So perhaps we could submit a question for the record for you uh, in terms of Burma collaboration, uh, what's happening with the new democratic government in Burma uh, in terms of the production er eradication efforts and trafficking, and then would like to talk a little bit further and get more detail on the trafficking uh, of drugs in Burma by the Burmese military and their complicit role they could play in this uh, ongoing effort. So we'd love to uh, learn more about that at some point. Senator, I'd welcome the question, because I got to tell you the timing I think is very good. I, I, my read of Burma right now is that this new government actually is ready to do some serious things on, on, on drugs and counter-narcotics that they have not been willing to do for 30 years. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Well, you've been a great witness, and uh, we thank you for the commitment and time and knowledge um, uh, on this topic. Let me just uh, wrap up by asking, I, I want to go back to Columbia for a second. And, you know, when the president was here, everyone was spiking the ball, if you will. Um, negotiations uh, on FARC were progressing, and people were happy and all of that. But I, I guess if I've, as I prepare for this hearing today, it feels to me like the reason things are progressing politically is they're easing up on the very thing we began working on so hard, um, and that was production within their own country. I, I just want to make sure I leave here with a 
proper understanding from a witness uh, who's lived and breathed this. Mr. Chairman, I, I, I'm going to give you an, an honest answer, uh, but a careful answer. And, and I want to be careful because I, I said it before and I say it again. I admire and respect tremendously the government of Colombia. Uh, until he became president, uh, I, I would have called the current president of Colombia a friend of mine. You obviously cannot be a friend to a president. They're, they're far, too, uh, far too distinguished to permit something as low and common as, as common friendship. But I, 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 I know and admire Juan Manuel Santos enormously. I respect what he is trying to do. He is trying to bring to conclusion a 50-year armed conflict that has killed tens of thousands of Colombian citizens. I not only respect that, I support it and endorse it. It is my view that it should be possible to pursue those negotiations, to reach that conclusion, without having to walk the clock back to where we were eight or nine years ago in terms of drug cultivation and production in Colombia. It is my view that it should be possible to continue to eradicate or have the threat of eradication so that thousands of campesinos, many of them encouraged perhaps by the FARC guerrillas, don't believe that it's open season on planting as much coca as they might wish. We have opened a discussion with them. It's a good discussion because these guys are our friends. We have been partners and allies with them now for more than 16 years under Plan Colombia. I don't mean to be critical of them. I mean to state an obvious fact. The amount of cocaine being produced in Colombia has doubled in the last two plus years. That's kind of a disturbing fact since most Colombian cocaine traditionally and historically is transported to the United States. We need to work together to figure how to deal with eradication, which is to say to stop the actual cultivation, to deal with taking down the laboratories, which convert the raw coca into cocaine, to go after the criminal organizations, those organizations not necessarily the FARC guerrillas, but the criminal organizations that are trafficking the product, and then finally how to interdict the product as it is moving from Colombia to North America and how to attack their financial networks. It should be possible to do that. I intend to do that. You have my absolute word of honor that there will not be an opportunity of mine when I'm talking to the government of Colombia, when I don't make this point and have this discussion with them. But, I, I, but my sense is, just for what it's worth, um, we missed that opportunity when he was here last. And there was a lot of happy talk here about Plan Colombia. And what I hear you saying, and with all your niceties regarding the government and your friendship with the existing president, is that He's not pursuing both tracks in the way that he could be, that he's pursuing the relationship with FARC and ending uh, what has been certainly a blight on their country for a long time, but he's not pursuing as heavily um, the issue that uh, is, has been at the core of this, and that is the production 
of cocaine in their country that is coming to the United States in the way that he could. Mr. Chairman, I, I'm not going to walk that far down this road. I, I, I'm going to go back to, to, to where I left it before. We are talking. We're moving in the right direction. How we got there, I'm going to leave that to the historians and the people far smarter than me. What I will say is there, I believe there is now a realization we've got a serious problem. And we are now talking to our friends and partners and allies in the Colombian government as to how to solve this problem. Uh, and on that, I, 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 I feel pretty good. I, you, we are all entitled to our own views as to how we got into this situation. The only point that I am making is I believe we're working on a route out of it. We know how to do it. Love it, Pete. We, uh, it, it's what we were doing from the year 2000 until the year 2000, uh, 2012, 2013, very, very effectively. And I am determined that we're going to do it again. That's the way I would respond to your question your valid comments. We are the authorizing committee for the work that you do. Are there some authorities that we could provide to you that would cause your job to be easier um, to be successful? Mr. Chairman, I, I'm going to answer th that question this way. Uh, obviously, as, as, as one assistant secretary among several and one department among a bunch in the, in the federal government, uh, I, I will not express a view as to, as to what the executive branch believes it needs in terms of new authorities. I will state the following, however. The last authorization that INL received was more than 20 years ago. Since that time, the United States has moved from a cocaine crisis to a heroin crisis. We have moved from a drug-focused international uh, crime effort to a larger transnational organized crime effort. We have moved from an overwhelming focus on the Western Hemisphere to having to deal with places like Afghanistan and Myanmar. Uh, are there areas that were not addressed in the early 1990s? Yes. Undoubtedly, there are, uh, and, and I would welcome a discussion uh, w with this committee in the, in the months ahead. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you for your testimony. Let me talk about Sub-Saharan Africa uh, for a bit. Um, it has many of the characteristics that make it uh, uh, prone to uh, transnational uh, terrorism and, and financing and, uh, and uh, criminal networks operating. Uh, let's talk about East Africa for a minute with Al-Shabaab. What uh, evidence do we see there of uh, transnational criminal networks operating? Boy, uh, huge evidence, Senator. And, and, and in fact, I, would, uh, I mentioned it in my oral statement, and I would say it again right now. Africa is one of, from my perspective, one of my three principal focuses foci, uh, as, I, as I look outside of the Western Hemisphere in terms of direct criminal networks with direct impact on the United States. And the reason is that two specific parts of Africa, West Africa and East or Central to, what do I want to say, uh, Southeast Africa have become transit points uh, for, for, for trafficking flows that are moving either east-west 
from Asia in, in route to markets in, in Europe or North America, or North-South, uh, which is to say from, say, South America into West Africa and then seeking market in, in, in Western Europe, if not flipping back across. We need to have focus on both of these from a pure trafficking perspective. The problem that we have is weak institutions in a number of countries in Africa, which make them very attractive for multi-billion dollar trafficking organizations. We also have organizations like Al-Shabaab uh, or Boko Haram uh, or further up north, uh, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Uh, which are able to corrupt and then use government institutions as well. Africa, from my perspective, is a very important point of focus without even going into the wildlife trafficking area, which, which, I, which we have become engaged in more aggressively over the last three and four years. Well, what are some of our strategies in East Africa? Let's take it with al-Shabaab. Uh, there are concerns, obviously. It's a transit point. Um, uh, a lot of along the coast there. Obviously, uh, we we have concerns. Uh, what what are we doing? First, you've you have correctly summarized the nature of the threat, and the nature of the threat is product uh, and, and criminal activity that originates for the most part in in South Asia, although the product may actually be further up in Central Asia, and, and then is transported from South Asia to East Africa for, in a sense, transshipment. That becomes a point uh, where it is introduced into a, a north-south axis, moving either to Europe or flipping across the continent and moving into North, uh, north America. What we are trying to do is build institutions that are better capable of addressing the problem, providing direct support, operational support, to existing law enforcement organizations uh, and using vetted units or specialized units in whom we have a great deal of confidence and are able to share intelligence and information with and ensuring that their regional coordination and cooperation is such that permits them to actually pass off or hand off uh, movements or organizations that are moving across borders and frontiers so that crossing a frontier doesn't completely lift all of the, uh, of the threat, the, 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 the danger to the criminal trafficking organization. And I would say that in East Africa, we are better today than we were five years ago. We are still miles away from being able to say that we are comfortable with and confident that these countries and these governments can control their own borders. Do we have any successes that we can point to specifically in terms of cooperation with local officials that has yielded uh, benefits that are tangible? We, we've had several major drug seizures, mostly heroin uh, coming in from Southwest Asia uh, that have been picked up e either e for the most part, at, at, at seaports, in some cases at airports. And in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you, uh, if you wish, I'll, I'll get you some, a written summary of, of some of those success stories. We have also taken down uh, several of what I would call mid-sized trafficking organizations 
uh, in East Africa, uh, although not the international or global organizations. And we have had some success, uh, some of which has made the newspapers, in terms of, of, of reducing, if not shutting down the flow uh, of, of what is one of Africa's great uh, criminal exports, and, and that is illegally trafficked uh, ivory and rhino horn. So I would suggest to you we do have some success stories. They are not as many as I would like to be able to report. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. You've been an outstanding witness. We thank you for, uh, again, your years of commitment to this issue. We look forward to following up with you relative to some updates that may occur that give you greater freedoms and flexibility to do your job. I know you've got a hard stop and a meeting that you need to attend, so thank you again for your time, both uh, here but also in preparation for the meeting, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. There'll be other questions that people will have in writing, and we'll keep the record open until the close of business on Monday, and if you could get to those uh, fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. But uh, thank you again, and with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman.